I was the assistant of one of the Hebrew professors. And he wanted to expand his, uh, um, how should I say, ministry, so that he wanted to train me to be a substitute for him so he could do other things as well. And so he actually had me teach my first Hebrew lesson. I had been with him a little bit of time at that point, probably about a year. But uh, he sat in the back of the class, didn't say anything. Well, he asked me to teach his class. Now, if you know um, uh, these Hebrew professors, um, they're just very uptight people, a lot of them are. And, um, and so what I decided to do is to teach exactly the way he teaches. And the way he taught, he would sit at a table, and he would just kind of do this, and he'd have his book, and he'd look at it and then look up, and then he'd look down, and that's how he taught. I thought, well, that's how he wants it done. So I sat down and had the table in front of me and taught the lesson, and uh, the students left, and he came up to me, and he said, that was the worst teaching I have ever seen in my life. And I wanted to tell him, that's you. That's you right there. That, that's who, who I did. I did my imitation of you. I didn't say that to him. And he said, that was terrible. He said, I was falling asleep. The whole class was falling asleep. It was the worst I've ever seen before. So I was up the next day as well. Well, I'd been pastoring by that time. I told you about the church because I had... Um, now, uh, it, it is like, uh, goodness, 10 to 11 years later from the time I was 23 and had been pastoring for several years then, and I came back in the next day and I set up a podium like this, and I thought, told myself, I'm just going to preach Hebrew, because that's what I've been doing my, uh, my life for the last 10 years or so. And so I put the podium up there, and I just taught Hebrew from the podium, and he came up afterwards and said, that's what I want you to do. He says, don't try to be me. Try to be you as best as you can be you and, um, and understand that. I say all this to say that it's tough to take correction, isn't it? It is tough for us to take correction. Who of us really likes to be corrected? In fact, I tell that story because working with him and he, there was no tact with this gentleman. I mean, and I appreciated that growing up in Cleveland. I appreciate, one of the things I love about Cleveland, Ohio, is you never have to guess what people think about you. They will express themselves. And so I was used to that. And I, my brother grew up there, and so he was like that. So I, part of my family was very much like that. And so I was used to that. And so I appreciated him doing that. But I can honestly say the only time I've actually appreciated getting correction was working with him. And the reason why is because I knew God had called me to teach Hebrew and Old Testament. I didn't know it was going to be at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary at that time, but I knew God's calling toward that direction. I wanted to be the best I could be at serving the Lord. I, I think we all want that. And so I was eager, although I can say it's the only time in my life I've been eager to take correction. Because most of the time, I don't want to hear it. And most of the time, I'm guessing most of you don't want to hear it either. And yet, correction is necessary. It's a necessary part, especially of ministry. If we want to be the people that God has called us to be, then we need to be willing and even eager to be corrected 
if we need to be corrected. And so what we see in Nehemiah 13, verses 4 through 31, is a need for correction. And as, as we look at this passage, I have to remind myself of 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, that says all scripture is inspired. Now, I don't have to be reminded of that, but I do have to re be reminded of the next part, and that is that it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, and what? For correction and for training in righteousness. So it is important for us to realize if we want to be the people of God, and, and why is this, by the way, in, in verse 17, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And so correction, whether we enjoy it or not, is necessary. And if we are in need of it, we should want it. No matter how difficult it may be, we should desire it if there is the need for it. And so the scriptures tell us what is wrong and corrects wrong behavior. It tells us what is right and tells us what is right behavior. And we need to be ready to understand that. I think of 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. Paul wrote Timothy there, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. And he tells him to reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. So it's important that we in the church do this and Sometimes we need to reprove, sometimes we need to rebuke, and we need to exhort, we need to do so with great patience and instruction, but it needs to be done. As we look in this passage, I can, I can tell you, I, Ann and I both are hopeless romantics. Now, it's not that we're romantic in um, the way I'm using, I'm using romantic in the classical sense, um, because our romance is... Uh, me getting her some candy at uh, our anniversary. Or I did get her a, a dishwasher once, and so that was nice as well. So that, that is our romance right there. Um, so I, she really wanted it, so there you go, okay? Um, so, so I don't mean romance in that sense. We are romantics in the sense we like happy endings, in the classical sense. We like happy endings. If I want to get her fired up, I'll tell her this is a great movie, knowing that it has a terrible ending, and she will just go ballistic at the end of it. Just like, why did you make me watch this and all this? I'm, what? I, you know, but uh, yeah, so we both like happy endings, though. That being the case, I know it's the word of God that we're looking at today. I would have rather Nehemiah have ended at verse 3. Because in verse 3, we end with, this great ceremony where people are dedicated to the things of God in, in chapter 12 and, and the first part of chapter 3, they, they turn away from any influences that would be um, against them to lead them down a wrong path. Everything seems to be done with the work that Nehemiah needed to do. I mean, finally, we've had this, this revival among the people of God and and they're ready to do the work that God has called them to do. And they're supporting the work of the temple. And, and they're turning away from the sin that ha they had allowed among them. And it just looks like it's wonderful. And it's like the end right here. But what happened is Nehemiah left 
to go back to Susa to the king to report to the king. I don't know if you remember this. Back in chapter 2, when the king gave him permission to go and be the governor of Judah, he told him or asked him, when are you going to return? And we see that Nehemiah promised he would return. And so after about 12 years being in Judah, finally Nehemiah goes back to the king to give a report on what was going on. What we read in this last chapter is what happened when Nehemiah returned from his trip to take up his governorship again. And what we read here is, is very sad. It's, it, it's really something that grieves me when I look at this because the people of God, all the things we see that they said they would do in chapter 12, they have neglected. And not just neglected, they have just quit. They have completely all quit all the commitments that they made, all the things that they said they would do and were doing by the, in a less than a year's time, whatever time it took for Nehemiah to go back and give his report and come back, they had completely walked away from doing all the things that they said they would do. And so why did Nehemiah come? If you remember back in verses, or chapter 1 and chapter 2, his purpose was to remove the reproach from Jerusalem and the people of God. And so when he comes back, what he finds is that spiritually the people are no different. And even, I would argue, they're worse than what they had been previous to this. And so he calls the people to be holy. What is to be holy? It is to be devoted to the Lord and him alone. It means to be separate from anything, the other gods, the, the other nations, anything that would lead them to fail in their devotion to God. And so what we look at here is God's purpose is for his people to be holy. And I would like us to notice what is done in this passage and what holiness means for the people of God as, as we look at this passage. The first thing we see is this. Holiness means being faithful in the responsibilities God has given us. Being faithful in the responsibilities God has given us. Look at verse 4. It says, Now prior to this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, re being related to Tobiah, had prepared a large room for him where formerly they put the grain offerings, the frankincense, the utensils, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil prescribed for the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. But during all this time, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had gone to the king. After some time, however, I asked leave from the king, and I came to Jerusalem and learned about the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah by preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. It was very displeasing to me. So I threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. Then I gave an order that they cleanse the rooms, and they cleanse the rooms, and I returned there the utensils of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. Eliashib was a priest. He knew better. But what he did, he moved out 
the things that pertain to the worship of God that were dedicated to God, that were cleansed as holy before God, dedicated to him, devoted for his worship, moved them out and cleared the area out so that of all people, Tobiah could come and take up residence there. Tobiah, not only was he not a priest, and priests were not supposed to be in the... Uh, anyone that was not a priest was not supposed to be in the precinct of the temple. But not only was he not a priest, we saw back in Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, Tobiah was an Ammonite. And he was one of the main people that were enemies of Nehemiah trying to get him killed. And he was the one who ridiculed the builders and, and, and said how weak they were. And he joined Sanballat, and, and he was involved in all of the terrible things that we read early in the book, trying to hinder the work of God's people and trying to ultimately kill Nehemiah. He's in on that. He was in on that. And the priest moves out the things of God from the temple precincts and pulls in Tobiah and says, let's give you a room here, and you can have this space. And it is amazing to see this, but it, it, it makes sense. It specifies that Tobiah was married to a Judean woman who was the daughter of a man named Shechaniah, the son of Erah. So Tobias' son was also married to a Judean woman. So what had happened is the intermarrying with foreigners directly led to this priest allowing this foreigner into the precincts to live, where only priests were to be. If you remember, they tried to get Nehemiah to go into the temple, and Nehemiah refused to do so. Because he knew that this was against God's law. At least he was a believing Israelite. But this is what he found. And what we see here is a person who had the responsibility of overseeing the things of God. And he allowed someone who was an enemy of the people of God. And whose desire was to influence the people of God to come in to this sacred place and to take up residence. And so, to make matters worse, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 3 through 6, it actually mentions two nations that for sure the people of God should stay away from. Guess what one of those nations was? Ammon. And so they were very much aware of this, and yet this is what happened. And so we see what Nehemiah did. He comes upon this, and he, he throws out all this stuff, throws him out, and he says, cleanse this place, purify it, because this is a place that's dedicated to the Lord. This isn't for a non-priest, much less an Ammonite. And this is not a racial thing. This is very much a holiness thing. To not be, again, to use New Testament language, unequally yoked 
with unbelievers. And by the way, we can be unequally yoked with unbelievers, by, and we don't have to marry them. It's when we become like them, and we stand in the place with them. And we look at Psalm 1, and it tells us that the people of God, we do not stand in the way of sinners. We are not to be with these people. And yet, this is what happened. A man who was in the position to lead spiritually had done this. So let me make some observations about what happened here. Compromising relationships usually lead to more compromise. When you enter, when I enter into a compromising relationship that compromises our faith and compromises the things of God, it usually leads to more compromise. And that's exactly what we saw going on here. Another observation, personal concerns and relationships must not supersede one's obedience to God's word. Personal concerns and relationships must not supersede one's obedience to God. Jesus says this in an astounding way. He speaks of those who who need to hate father and mother and that the one who's not willing to do that is not worthy of serving him. He's not saying having a real hatred toward father and mother. But what he's saying is that our devotion to the Lord is so strong that no other relationship is in comparison to it. That he is first and foremost in our lives and in our devotion. Another observation, the people of God have been called to serve the Lord, not to use him for self-serving interests. And that's exactly what Tobiah was doing. That's exactly what Eliashib was doing as well. Another observation, unfaithful um, leaders or the absence of faithful spiritual leadership usually opens the door to the sin of others. Leaders are responsible. They are responsible, not completely, but they are responsible to be faithful to what God has called them to do. And the thing is, one of the things I mentioned in chapter one that really bugged me about Nehemiah's prayer, yeah, I get bugged at the Bible sometimes, especially when people do things that I really don't want to do, when they're faithful on me. And Nehemiah was faithful. The word I don't like about Nehemiah's prayer when he was confessing for the people of God is he kept saying, we, we have sinned. We have done these things. And I'm like, hold the horses here, Nehemiah. You weren't even alive when all these sinful things were happening to the people of God. But you know what Nehemiah is teaching us? That we are in this thing together. That we are members of one another. And that we take responsibility for one another. We care for one another. We pray for one another. If need be, we correct one another. But we are in this thing together, and we are responsible to one another as we are responsible to God. And that is loving one another. I think of the words of our Lord Jesus Christ again, who said, they will know that you are my disciples by what? Your love for one another. 
And loving one another includes taking responsibility for one another, looking out for one another, and again, at times, correcting one another if need be. In the spirit of love. And so, this is what happens when spiritual leaders open the door to the sins of others. I may have shared this with you already in the short time I've been with you, but it really struck me. There was a lady who came, up, came out of church, it was after church one Sunday, um, and I was a kid hanging out with dad. You've already figured out I did a lot of hanging out with dad at church, and this time I wasn't actually running and shutting off lights or locking doors or anything like that, but I was standing next to him, and, and one of the things that's very odd in ministry that I found that I didn't, but I saw this with my dad, but I've always found it very odd is that sometimes people feel like they need to confess their sins to their pastor. Um, that's okay, um, but we're not priests. So I always found that very odd in, in a sense that um, that, that would happen. But I, I understand sometimes we need someone to talk to. But this lady just came out right after church. There are people all milling around us. I mean, it's right after the service. And I'm standing there next to him. And um, she did, I don't even know what she did, but it was like, you know what, um, my dog was was barking at the neighbors and I yelled at my dog and I just feel so guilty about that you know I mean it was like one of those things like what what are you, you I was thinking this is not a sin lady I mean you're okay this is not a big deal and I was expecting dad to say that and he didn't he didn't say it was okay he didn't say it was bad he just said basically you know you need to to take this before the Lord and and um, he's, he's a God who forgives our sins. And after she left, I was like, Dad, you were hard on her. She, this was very small, whatever she did. It was, and he said, whenever the Lord is convicting someone of sin, don't tell them it's okay. Don't tell them it's okay. You don't have to tell them it's wrong but don't tell them it's okay. Let the Lord work it out in his people and encourage them and have them take it to the Lord. And it's important for us to, to understand that in leadership. We, we can sometimes open the door to sin by minimalizing sin in the eyes of others. And we must be careful of that as well. Another thing, godly people are displeased when they learn of the sin either committed by themselves or by their brothers and sisters in the faith, there should be a displeasure when there's sin in us and when there's sins in, sin in our brothers and sisters in Christ. But for many of us, we're just not concerned at all. It's just no big deal. It's a big deal if it has a bad effect on us. The thing is, we don't realize it already does have a bad effect on us. And often we don't realize that. Correcting a problem includes both confronting the problem and setting or resetting things as they should be. Correcting the problem is confronting it and then setting or resetting things back as they should be. And so this is what he did. And finally, accountability is essential to everyone in the community of faith, including its leadership. But accountability, this is why 
we have one of the reasons we have the church. There's an accountability. And a lot of folks don't want to commit themselves to membership in the church because they don't want any accountability. Oh, yeah, it's good to hear this guy rant and rave for whatever he does once a week. And he might tell, say something funny. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, that's fine. But what about the accountability that we have to one another? And as a people of God, we are accountable. And what many happen are doing today among believers is we see a lot of people attending church but not being members of churches because they don't want any accountability. And that's why we are so weak. One of the many reasons, I believe, we are so weak in the eyes of this world today. Because we want just enough to, to make us feel okay, but we don't want anyone meddling in our lives and encouraging us in the faith to be the people of God that God has called us to be. We need people in our lives who will be straight shooters with us and hold us accountable. Who love us enough to say, you're in the wrong place in this. It's not good for you. It's not good for your family. It's not good for the church. It's not good for anyone. And you need to change what you're doing. There are times we need someone who loves us enough to do this and holds us accountable in love. Now, who is it that we'll most listen to? We will most listen to people we know who love us. Has Nehemiah spent the last 12 years showing these people how much he loved the Lord and how much he loved this people. Did Nehemiah really have to get involved at all, with all of that and all the grief that he went through? Absolutely not. He did so because of his love for the Lord and his love for the people of God and his desire for the Lord to be glorified and a reproach to be removed from the people of God. And all the junk that he went through was because of that. I will tell you, there may be a few spiritual leaders that enjoy correcting people, but most don't. No more than you do. But most do if they love the people and love the Lord because they know it is the right thing to do. It is what honors God and helps the people of God. I think about how many parents will not correct their parents. I read an article this week about this, or parents who won't correct their children. Uh, the, the deal is, um, well, I, I, I was hard on them last time, so I don't want to do this. Or, you know, I, I just don't want them to not like me. And this is, this, this is one re reason parents give, that they don't discipline their children. Um, you know, uh, it, it's a hard life that they're living right now. School's hard, and and, you know, all the activities, uh, football is hard on them, and the math class is really hard. Uh, you know, I just don't want to correct them and get on to them. I want them to have a free space and just enjoy themselves, whatever, when they're around me. And what we do, I heard Alistair Begg say this, this like the last week, which just stuck with me. 
He says, what we do with children is uh, we don't take care of them. We don't love them enough to correct them. We don't, we don't take responsibility for them. We just ignore them. And he says, then we're surprised in the last six or seven years of our lives that they ignore us. And there's accountability. And this is what he understood. And maturity in Christ is accepting accountability, meaning I'm accountable to you. And you're accountable to me, and we are accountable to each other in the body of Christ. And it matters before the people of God. Well, let me move on to uh, the next situation that, uh, that we see here. Um, because we see holiness also means faithfully giving support to God's work. And look at verse 10. I also discovered that the portions of the Levites had not, been, had not been given them, so that the Levites and the singers who performed the service had gone away each to his own field. So I reprimand, reprimanded the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? Then I gathered them together and restored them to their posts. All Judah then brought the tithe of grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. In charge of the storehouses, I appointed Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and in addition to them was Hanan, the son of Zakur, the son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and it was their task to distribute to their kinsmen. Remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out my loyal deeds, which I have performed for the house of my God and its services. Let me start with his prayer at the end. Remember me in this. Why? Because I have no doubt that the people were not at all receptive at first to what he was saying. And again, people don't take pleasure in correcting others. Oh, there are some, and they're the ones that probably shouldn't be. But he takes no pleasure in this. He's doing it because it is right for God and right for them. And he prays for God to remember him, what he has done for his sake, for, for the Lord's sake. And so when, spiritual, when the spiritual life of leaders diminishes because of sin and carelessness, you know what happens? God's provision for his work decreases. And there was a need for a reprimand. And so this is what he does. And it's interesting, back in chapter 12, when everything seemed wonderful, in verse 44 it states, On that day men were also appointed over the chambers for the stores, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them from the fields of the cities, the portions required by the law for the priests and Levites. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and Levites who served. They did, but they stopped. And they stopped being the people of God that put the worship of the Lord and helping the spiritual leaders to perform their duties to lead the people in worship. They have left that and are far from it. Have you ever noticed how drastically things can change in a very short period of time? 
And that's exactly what happened with these people, either for good or for ill. And so let me make some more observations about this situation. Sin is never an isolated incident. When they stopped putting the priority on the, the temple and the Lord's work, it had an effect on a great many other people as well. There's no sin to self. And this is something they need to realize, needed to realize and what, what we see in them. Spiritual leaders cannot do God's work if they're not supported by the people of God. In his providence, God has chosen to do it that way. I guarantee you that there are many a pastor who would rather have their income come from some independent source than the church. But that's not God's way. I imagine there are a lot of people in the church that wish the pastor's income came from some other independent source. But that is not how he has established it. And it is important to realize that we are in this thing together. The people of God and the leadership among the people of God working together to do the work that God has called it to do. I will tell you this, the church that prioritizes the ministry of the church and prioritizes the ministry of the word, not only by listening to it and giving time to it, but also by supporting those who do it, who are the teachers, the Lord will bless that church. I believe that with all my heart. That this is their priority. And God takes delight in the church, the people of God, who delight in his word and delight to, to support those who have given their lives to teach and preach that word to us. More generally speaking, the sins of the people of God frustrate the work of the people of God. Our sins, we frustrate the work. Another observation, after Nehemiah re reprimanded the leaders, the people began bringing their tithes once again. It was ap after they were corrected. Nehemiah was courageous enough to correct them. And that's when things changed. Wisdom calls for selecting reliable people to oversee God's work even if it requires replacing unreliable people. It requires reliable people to do the work. People who are people that they can count on. What would happen in the church if we were all reliable to do what God has called us to do? What if we treated the work of the church like we treat our jobs? Or even better, which I think we should better than our jobs. But the only thing is, I will say this, we live in a culture now that just treats their jobs horrendously. So it, it, it filters into the church. 
But how many times have I seen in, in the years gone by where it's about five minutes before Sunday school begins and someone calls and says, I can't make it, or even better yet, doesn't call at all. And there's no issue. They just didn't make it that morning. And you don't think that's true? I have a son that uh, um, is at, at a church. He is uh, over one portion of uh, Sunday school, one area. He, he tells me about a couple of families that just, uh, we just didn't make it in to teach our, our, our high school Sunday school class today. Just didn't make it. And we need reliable people in the church. People who understand that the call to serve the Lord is a privilege. And it is also a necessity for the church. Because what we do for one another is service unto the Lord. So, corporately, God's holy people are expected to be devoted to God's holy work. Are you devoted to God's work? I, I, I think about this, and, and I'm hesitant to say this because I don't want it to... It really wasn't a good thing that I did. I remember in my last church, we were in need of some adult Sunday school teachers. And um, I had really tried to stay away from teaching. Um, reason, reason being, one, I wanted other people to have the opportunity, and I didn't want to take the, uh, a place if others could do it. Um, two, um, I was doing a lot of things already, but the Lord convicted me of that. Now, I'm not saying everybody has to do what I, I did, but I got to looking at all the people in our church. It was a small church, but I, I began to realize, you know what? Who has more education and teaching than anyone in this church i did and i'm not talking about at seminary i'm talking about my bachelor's degree is in education and then i also had taught school for five years and we're needing teachers basically what i was doing during the sunday school hour is just looking over my my sermon notes and and i was praying and that's important but you know what they were things that I should have done already anyhow. And so I, I said, I'll teach. And all the reason I say that is whatever you're gifted in, do you give your work your best or do you give the things of God your best? Whatever gifts you have, that the people who are a holy people, they want to glorify God and do his work. Well, let's look on to them. We've got two more, and I'll be very quick with these. Holiness means keeping holy that which God has made holy. And we see this in verses 15 um, through, through 22. And um, what we see here is that uh, the people were buying and selling on the Sabbath. And the main problem was that there were, there were merchants coming in to the city that were foreigners who were doing their buying and selling on the Sabbath as well. And what he says is, we're putting an end to this. This is against God's law. This is against God's purpose. The, the Sabbath is a sign of our covenant with the Lord. 
we are not doing this any longer. And so he told the people to, to stop doing this, and still um, they, they locked the gates so no one could come in, but still the merchants were coming to the city outskirts saying, you know, here we are, and he told them that if you keep doing this, I'm going to use force to get rid of you, and they stopped. But the point is that a people who are holy are committed to keeping that which is holy, holy to God. And are not going to let it go by the wayside. And this is what he did. They were doing disobedience to God. They were profaning the Sabbath. And what happened? He confronted them. He rebuked them. He reprimanded the leaders. And then he did something to make sure that it would not happen again. And he took care of it. Finally, holiness means shunning anything that would damage our devotion to God. Shunning anything that would demand, or damage rather, our devotion to God. And we see this in verses 23 through 31. And uh, what we see in verse 23, In those days I saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. As for their children, half spoke in the language of Ashdod, and none of them was able to speak the language of Judah, but the language of his own people. So I contended with them, and cursed them, and struck some of them, and pulled out their hair, and made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons, or for your sake. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Yet among many nations there was no king like him, and he was loved by God, and God made him king over Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused even him to sin. Now, when we look at this, we're like, my goodness, Nehemiah just went crazy on this. He needs another vacation, doesn't he? I mean, he, he's lost his mind. He's actually grabbing people and pulling their hair and, and uh, pulling the hair of their beards, it seems, and, and all these things going on. And um, when we look at this, what did he say? That this is exactly what got us into this place in the first place. This is what led to the exile. This is what led to the destruction of the temple and, and the first temple. And, and this is what led to the destruction of Jerusalem. This is what led to all the debris and all the trouble that we're still dealing with today. And you're going back and doing the same thing again? No. This is not going to happen. And yes, he was visibly put out. And reasonably so. Why was he put out? Because of his love for God and love for the people of God. That he did not want them to experience what they had already experienced. And I recall having a professor one of my education professors, he said there should be no um, corporal punishment ever for a child. Now, he wasn't just talking about in school. He's saying ever. And someone in the class said, well, would you ever spank your child ever? This is what he said, and it stuck with me. I was 21 years old, never forgotten it. He said, well, okay, if my child continually ran out into a busy street where it would, where they were, 
could possibly be killed, I would spank them because it's endangering their lives. And I thought, ah, so if it's life-threatening, you'll do it. What is sin? According to Scripture, the wages of sin is death. And it is life-threatening. It is threatening to believers even that we do not experience the life that God intended us, not as a loss of our salvation, but still the loss of blessing and the loss of life that God intended us to live when we live in disobedience to him. And so if we really thought that sin is as serious as our God sending his son to die in our place, for our sins, if we recognize the seriousness of sin, maybe we would not be so appalled by a person like Nehemiah who gets all worked up about the sins of the people of God that are going to lead them into the worst place possible because they've already done it and they know it to be true. And so it says a lot more about us than it really does about Nehemiah that we are not so upset about sin. I mean, we'd rather it not happen, but not so upset about it. Not concerned of the consequences it has on the people of God. Well, let me close with these questions for us. What happens to believers when we are resistant to godly correction? What happens to believers? What happens in your life when you're resistant to godly correction? What happens is a loss of blessing and a loss of maturity and a loss of growth in your life to be more like Christ and in the life of the church and what God's purpose is for the church. Are you angry when you are corrected? And if so, should you be angry when you're corrected? Now, this granted, have you ever been corrected when you really weren't wrong? Yeah. It's like the one guy said, I thought I was wrong one time, and I realized I was wrong when I thought I was wrong, right? So, yeah, no, no, we've been corrected when we're not, not been wrong. But an attitude, but the question, have you ever been wrong? So you have a track record of having been wrong. So maybe when someone corrects you and they're incorrect in their correction, maybe you should still give some thought to it and be glad at least that someone cared enough to, to try to help you. Because we do get it wrong quite often. And so we have this attitude. We don't want to be corrected when we should be submissive to, our, to the Lord, realizing we often need correction. And let me ask you this. Are you more concerned about pleasing God or pleasing people? I will tell you this. When Nehemiah prays, God, don't forget what I've done. You know what he's saying here? I'm concerned about what you think, God. I'm not concerned so much about what other people think. That doesn't mean that he wasn't kind to the people. We saw this. He's a generous man, loving man to the people. 
but he wasn't going to let their expectations keep him from doing what God had called him to do. And this is important for us. I will tell you, my oldest son will say this to you because he's repeated it to me and I had forgotten I'd even said it. But it wasn't too long ago he said, you know, you told us that we need to go our own path and we need to be faithful to what God has called us to do and not live for others, but to live for him. And as we live for him, we serve others, but we live for, for him. Well, I didn't remember saying that. I'm glad I did, because it's true. And the last thing I would say is, what can we learn from Nehemiah's perseverance in ministry? Here's the thing. This seems like a hopeless book at the end. It's all, this, all these terrible things. He corrects them, but I thought he'd already corrected them. Is there any hope? There is. The hope is in Christ. And there's coming a day when all things will be made right. And we will see him face to face and we will be like him. But we're not there yet. And what that means is the work of the ministry is ongoing. And there are always going to be challenges. There are always going to be difficulties. And that God is with us and we need to be firm just like Nehemiah was to continue the work he's called us to do, even when it's difficult to do that work. And it isn't going to end until the Lord puts an end to it, and that's in his good time. Until that time comes, we need to be faithful. We need to be honoring to the Lord. And we need to follow our Savior, who was willing to humble himself to go through all sorts of ridicule and then suffering and death for what? For the glory of the Father and for the salvation of his church. And so we have been called to follow in the steps of our Savior, to continue that work regardless. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. For your word, we thank you that you have called us to serve you. And Father, I pray that we would have the spirit that Nehemiah had, the spirit that was in Christ, to be obedient, to love you completely, and because of our love for you, to, to be willing to do what is necessary for your glory. And I pray that you would give us the grace to do so. I thank you for this church. I thank you for the people, their love for you. I thank you for Jeff and his coming and the, the elders here, the deacons and all who serve here. And Father, I pray your blessing upon them that you will lead them in the place that you would have them go, that Jesus Christ would be magnified and that this would be a church that cooperatively works together for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.